My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. This morning I'm going to be focusing primarily on the text from Romans, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. The title of my sermon this morning is One Voice. In the book of Romans, it's important to understand some of the contextual background as to what St. Paul is dealing with in writing to them. It's a church that he himself had not started, uh, but it was one that he was invested in. In the history of what was happening in the background there, there was uh, one of the Roman emperors had expelled uh, all of the Jews from the city for various reasons, and then after a period of time sort of let them come back in. And we have to understand since Jews and Christians were not wholly separated yet, right, because we know from reading the gospel, uh, reading the book of Acts and the gospels that the first believers in Jesus were indeed Jews. And then the message of Christ spread to the Gentiles who were included as well, fulfilling the words spoken by the prophets. But since they weren't, they were considered one, they weren't recognized by the Roman states as two separate competing uh, sort of religious groups. They were sort of uh, considered the same group. Um, some of the Christians who uh, were Jews were also expelled from, from Rome. And then later on, they were eventually let back in, and then they had to reintegrate. So Romans deals with some of these tensions between uh, the Greek Christians, as you like to say, or the Gentile Christians, and the Jewish Christians, which is why when you read Romans, Paul goes through various pains to talk about how the scriptures are appropriate for both the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. He references this all through uh, the book of Romans, essentially saying that they're all in the same boat, essentially, in regards to everything, sin, salvation, and all of that. And this, I think, is, it comes to light a little bit in the reading we heard this morning, in that the expectation of the hope that we have in Christ, we should then learn to live in one harmony with one another, to glorify God in one voice. So he says in verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Right? So we see right here that there are indeed people who are stronger. Now how does he mean this in this text of Romans? Well, is he talking about strength is in weight? Is he saying some of you can really bench, bro? You're a lot stronger and you can lift more weights than these other people. They're kind of weak. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not speaking about working out or physical fitness. He's talking about strength in regards to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual experience. Life in Christ. And spiritual maturity and this experience as the people of God, this deepening only comes with the life of serving Christ faithfully. There are many people 
Well, just, but just because you've been a Christian for a very long time doesn't necessarily mean you are spiritually mature. Indeed, Paul himself has to write to the church in Corinth and say, I wish I could talk to you as grown-ups, but I can't. I have to talk to you like I would talk to my toddler. Well, Paul didn't have a toddler. I'm just inserting myself in there, right? But he's essentially saying to the Corinthian church, how I, how, well, me, now this is me talking, now Paul, right? How I, I correct my toddler, don't cry. Well, let's count to four. Don't throw your things. I can't sit with my toddler and say, you know, let's explore your behavioral patterns, Sophia. <laughs> let's get to the root of why you're throwing this. Did you see me throw something in frustration one day? Or your brother? Was it when he took his cup and he threw it? Is that, why, is that what we're dealing with? Okay, well, let's dig deeper. Tell me about your mom, right? No, like not... He can't talk to them that way. He has to say, stop. No, don't do that. Because he is more spiritually mature than they are. And there are people in the community who are more spiritually mature than others. And this also, brothers and sisters, is a reason why young and inexperienced Christians should not hold key leadership positions in the church. He says, those who are strong are to help bear with the failings of the weak. Now, is there any judgment in that statement? No. Is he saying that the weaker Christians are bad? No. Is he saying that the weaker Christians are less Christians than the others? No. He's not attaching value to strength or weak. He's not saying that these weaker ones, we should kind of shun them and treat them terribly. He says to look out for them. He says in Galatians 6, 2, echoing what he said here in Romans 15, he says to them, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we know, of course, the law of Christ is love. And so when he talks about bearing up with the weaker here in Romans, he's not just talking about endurance, right? There, there is something to endurance, right? If you ever, have ever been on an airplane or a restaurant and there's a screaming child in the background, some people, for some reason, it drives them crazy. Look, I get it. I'm a parent. It can be annoying hearing a screaming kid. Or, heaven forbid, a screaming kid in church. When I hear screaming kids in church, I love it because it means there's life here, Right? So when Hadley or whoever's, or, or Harbor or, or Sophia or Isaac, whoever, they start screaming, I'm like, that's a good thing. But sometimes, if they don't stop, it can be taxing. We understand this, right? But it's not just enduring in that way, just putting up, okay. I mean, I think there's definitely something to that. But when he's talking about bearing up one another here, bearing up with the weaker one, he's saying to take up or to carry. Right, the burdens that the weaker ones are carrying to come alongside them and to carry them, to pick them up, to help them. To put your arm around them and lift them up and help them walk when they are weak. Not weak physically necessarily, but weak in faith or weak in spirit. And he says that this is not pleasing to the self. He says this at the end in verse 1. We do this to not please ourselves. Because, hint, hint, doing what pleases the self is generally not a good thing. To do what feels right for you is not always the best advice. 
How many of you have ever had a well-meaning friend or family member who said, when you're facing a decision, do what feels right for you. And then you did. And then it turned out horribly. I'm raising my hand. I'll admit that to you. I've done that. I've, I've, I've taken that advice and did it. And it turned out horribly. Do what feels right for you. Oftentimes, that's the worst advice. Because what feels right for us isn't always right for us. Because what feels right can, in fact, actually be very wrong. We are not living our lives to please ourselves. That doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that we can't have experiences or do things that bring us pleasure because God created everything good and has given us a good world to live in. But the focus, the crux, what we point our lives towards is not the satisfaction of our desires. We are called to bear those who are spiritually weaker, those who are spiritually mature. But he does write in another place, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So he even addresses in another place. If you think you're spiritually mature and you want to help somebody else who's weaker, you better be careful because you might not be as spiritually mature as you think. So maybe the best way to gauge of whether or not you're spiritually mature is not your own self-assessment because, you know, we're program we're, we're as human beings, you know, we can deceive ourselves. Maybe the best measure of our spiritual maturity as an experience is how we're treated by the others in the congregation. And spiritual maturity and experience does not come with age. You can be a Christian for 40 years and still be as sin-filled and as spiteful and as mean as you were 40 years ago. I've met people like that. I'm sure you have too. They got a fish bumper sticker on their car. But if you cut them off in traffic accidentally, there comes out the middle finger, right? And we, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but and being, you know, being a Christian for 40 years doesn't mean that you actually know anything about the faith. I've met Christians who say, well, I've been a Christian 40 years, so I can comment on this theological point or that theological point with the degree of authority. And then they say the completely wrong thing that's completely untrue. Sorry, just had to throw that in. We are called to bear those who are spiritually weaker. And this is extended not just to those, those in the Christian community, brothers and sisters, but to those that sat as well. Because he says here, uh, to please your neighbor, for the, it's good to build them up. Pleasing our neighbor, bearing the failings of the weak, it builds them up. And all this is based on the work of Jesus Christ, who he says in verse 3, did not please himself. We hear all of these things that, that Ellen read from the, the text of Isaiah about all of the things that Jesus, as he comes again in his second advent, will do and bring. He doesn't go through this entire experience. The word does not become flesh because he wanted to take a really cool vacation in a different place and in heaven. The word took on flesh, united divine and human nature together to redeem us, to save us from our sins and to reunite us with the God we rebelled against and continue to rebel against. And he didn't do this to please himself. Because let me tell you something, being nailed to a cross does not feel very good. He didn't go through all of this for himself. He did all of this for us and for the entirety of everything that he had created. And so, brothers and sisters, as Christ does not please himself, we are not to live to please ourselves as well. 
that we are to serve those that are weaker and in need. Then Paul says, he makes a move here, tying this in with it. He says that in verse 4, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instructions, that through our endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So he's talking about what was written in the former days, right? He's referring to Old Testament scriptures. And to us as modern readers, this is referencing the scripture as a whole. The scriptures, as we I preached about this a few, uh, maybe a month ago, about what, what are the scriptures? That they are inspired by God. That they are authoritative. That the, the, scripture, the scriptures are the words of God. The word of God given to us. That it is true and authoritative in everything that it teaches. By the time that Paul's writing this, his writings and the writings of the other apostles are already seen to be on equal footing with the Old Testament. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in them, the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So there's a reference here in Peter already, recognizing that the writings of Paul are already at the same level to be treated as the Old Testament prophets and the Psalms and the writings. And people, I wish this was something that didn't happen anymore, but there are preachers and Christians who continue to twist the other scriptures and the words of Paul to their own destruction. And all of this is written for our instruction, right? Everything in the Holy Scriptures, Timothy remind, Paul reminds Timothy, are profitable for us, for reproof, for correction, for exhortation. They all work towards a political, particular political, excuse me. <laughs> They don't work that way. They work towards a particular end. A particular end. They help us to endure. And they encourage us. And they say, well, how do the scriptures encourage us? How do they help us endure? Well, read them. And when you read them, you will see people wrestling with God. That's what the name Israel means. The, the wrestling with God. We see the history of an entire group of people. God taking out a group of people, taking Abraham out from among the nations to create his own. And then to have those people constantly back and forth between a life of, of serving him and rebelling against him. That's a microcosm, right? Of, of uh, Microcosm, yeah. Microcosm, microcosm. I don't know what I'm doing today, right? Of the entirety of the human experience. Their experience help us to endure faithfully in our own day and context. Because the scriptures are full of stories of people who missed it. Of people who sinned deeply uh, and, and, and were judged for it. But we also have stories of people who sinned deeply and repented. And were, and were restored and renewed, right? All of this helps us. It helps us to endure faithfully in our own day and context. And it's not just a grim, grit your teeth type of endurance. But it's an endurance embedded in hope. The hope of the resurrection and the life in the age to come. That everything that God had promised through the prophets, that everything we heard read from the book of Isaiah about, about Christ returning to rule, not by what he sees or what he hears, but by ruling with righteousness. That all of this is coming. And this age to come is a huge theme so the season of Advent, Christ's first coming and also his second. And for us, as I talked about a little bit last week, it's a time of rejoicing, of hopeful anticipation. Then he talks about the God of all comfort and encouragement. 
Right? We talked about scripture being divinely inspired by God. God is the source of our endurance. So if God is a source of endurance, and if God is a source of our encouragement, then the Holy Scriptures will reflect this, His endurance, His source of endurance, and His source of encouragement for us. Right? So if God is a God of all comfort and encouragement, then this enables us to live in harmony with one another. Because we have a common hope, a common encouragement. With no common hope, with no common source of encouragement, there can be no unity. Unity does not exist for its own sake. <clears throat> for something, for a people to be united, they need to have a common set of beliefs and values. <coughs> Pardon me, my throat is... I don't know what's going on with my throat this week. It's been very weird. There's a lot of talk about oneness, about unity. And as Christians, we are to be united and one with everyone. But we can only be united and one with others to the degree that we align. Can you be one with Christians who don't believe that Jesus is God incarnate? Can we be one with people who believe that the writings of Scripture are just on the level of any other book, Moby Dick, or whatever. Can we be one with those who would deny the resurrection and say, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he just rose in their hearts and they had this feeling of him being alive again even though he was dead and they saw his dead body. Can we unite with them? I don't think we can because there's nothing shared there. Because of our faith, exists because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and was crucified for us and for our salvation died and rose again ascended and is coming again if we can't at least unite around the basics in the apostles creed or the Nicene creed then how can we be one we have to have a common set of values and beliefs and I'm not saying that we have to agree with all Christians with all times about every single point of doctrine here and there, right? Like some Christians are really, really into this, what's, what's called the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 and 15. And they believe in another experience that you're supposed to have after you're, you're born again, right? They call this speaking in tongues. Right, most, lots of Christians say, well, we don't agree with that. And that's the thing, you don't have to agree with that. That's okay. But a lot of those people who believe in speaking in tongues, they believe that Jesus is God, they believe that he became flesh, they believe in the virgin birth, they believe in his crucifixion, they believe in his bodily resurrection. I think we can unite with them around those things, can't we? For there to be union, there has to be some level of commonality. Unity doesn't exist for its own sake. That type of unity, I should say. Then, brothers and sisters, we can glorify God with what he says with one voice. With one voice. And this begins, I think, by welcoming one another. By welcoming one another. He says in verse 7, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So earlier we talked a little bit about the fracturing in the church of Rome. 
So Paul is saying here to them, Christ has welcomed everyone who will receive him, right? That's the model. So those who are coming back into the community, those who have come back, you need to help them. You need to support them because a lot of them lost everything when they were expelled from Rome. Paul is saying, welcome them back, support them, help them, work with them, provide for them. Because you know what? That's what Jesus did for you, he's saying. His Christ has welcomed you. He didn't have to. We heard on the gospel reading, St. John the Baptizer said, don't take pride that you say that you're the sons of Abraham. If God wanted to, you see those rocks over there by the river I'm baptizing you in? If God wanted to make a new people, he could just take these stones and turn them into people. And call them his children. So don't take pride in your status. Because God can do what he will. God is sovereign after all. Right? But Christ, but God in spite of that, welcomes them. He welcomes them. He calls them to union with the Father. And with himself and with the Spirit. And if Christ welcomes all those who will come to him then they need to be welcomed too. <clears throat> Excuse me. Christ welcomes all to the wedding feast. Christ welcomes all to feast at his table. But you have to have your wedding garment. It's in the, it's in his, it's in the words of Jesus. You cannot come to the table without your wedding garment. To come to the table, you have to answer the invitation to the feast, to the wedding feast. You can't just... <laughs> having your garment ready and having your invitation means life in Christ. It means repentance. Entrance into the people of God. Right? Readiness for his return. Doing the works he asked us to do. Right? And ultimately we have to understand that we hear this in the readings throughout Advent and Christmas that eventually the doors of the feast will be shut. The doors of the feast will be shut. We're not there yet, fortunately. Thank God for His grace and God's patience. Right now, the doors of the feast are open. So let us welcome those from outside. Call them to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance, being baptized into Him, putting Him on, and then giving them a seat at the table. So we can then all together, as a respond, sing... The lyrics, that I, there's a song that I quite like. It goes like this, the chorus, it says this. At last my voice will be joined with 1,000 others. One sweet chorus. All of us singing hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. One God. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Zion's Stone Church. We're in the middle of a building repair campaign, and if you'd like to help, please go to www.gofundme.com slash zionsstonechurchrepairfund. We'd appreciate anything you'd be able to donate. If you're ever in the area, you're always welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10.15 a.m. God bless you.